today. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm Stuart Bullman, and I have the privilege to speak to you today not as a pastor, a staff pastor of this church, but as a fellow member of the marketplace. And I am and have been very eager to speak with you about what God has been teaching me in my journey of faith. And so today, that's what we're going to do. And then next week, uh, we'll come back together again and uh, well, I'll clean up the mess that I made this week. So uh, let's, uh, let's get rolling along. Three weeks ago, uh, you got to see this picture of Trotter talking about his team on leadership retreat after a great dinner. It was really fun. Uh, but there's more to this story, as it turns out. Uh, we had caravaned to the restaurant for about 50 minutes away. And about, I think we had four vans. And my 10-year-old clinking, maybe I shouldn't have driven it, van was the, one of the vans that was in the caravan, and a lot of you got to experience this personally. So as we headed back out on the main road, I uh, got that little puff of radiator coolant smoke, not a good sign, no, that's not good. So I uh, looked over at the instrument panel, and right there is this gauge right in front of me, and there it is, the H, the needle's closer to the H than the L, I'm thinking, okay, Better pull off and take a look. So we pulled off, and this whole caravan stops, and the leadership of North Wake gets around the van to give it their great wisdom. Uh, <laughs> we searched for some kind of source of a problem. Couldn't find one, really. And so put a couple of water bottles in the uh, reserve tank there for the radiator and hit the road again. Get back down the road for a little bit and hoping for the needle to drop. Same spot. Doesn't budge. So thinking, it's getting late now, it's dark, and better do something about this. So pull off the road again, look, all the big stores are closed, so we go to a convenience mart to buy a gallon of that uh, radiator, the coolant stuff, and pour that in the reservoir, and get back on the road again, and needle doesn't budge. Stuck right there. So I think, well, we're just going to try to limp back. Uh, so we cruise along, and I, I really felt badly for the people that were with us in the caravan, not just for them, though, but for the people that were following me because behind me was about a half a mile long of traffic because I couldn't go very fast. I was scared to. So I just kept driving along. And well, we made it back to the retreat center. It's kind of a humbling experience for me. Turns out the humility was just getting started. (laughs) Next morning, we wrapped up our time together. We loaded up uh, all of our vehicles. Ann and I jumped in a van. I cranked up the van. And would you believe, needles in the same stinking spot. Something is wrong here. Okay, you don't just start up a cold vehicle and the temperature's already high. That doesn't work. And so I'm scratching my head trying to figure out what's going on here. And, and to those of you who are with me who are just now learning the truth, I have to apologize that I was actually looking at the oil pressure gauge. <laughs> Not the temperature gauge. That gauge was right where it was supposed to be. So, friends, I'm really sorry for your inconvenience. Oh, well. It was an adventure, right? So, sometimes when we look at the wrong gauges, we misinterpret the facts. They're humorous. Sometimes they're more significant. This is a B-24 Liberator bomber, one of the great uh, new aircraft of World War II a very effective war machine, and a brand new one of these was delivered off the coast of Libya in May of 1943, and her crew named her the Lady Be Good. Her maiden mission was an evening raid across the Mediterranean over to Naples, Italy to try to bomb the ports there and 
drive the Axis powers out. On the way over, the weather was really bad and separated the squadrons such that they were alone doing their mission. And so they went out to try to carry out their mission and then finally had to, after they made all the way over there, turn around and come back. And uh, so they radioed the base to tell them that they were coming back and get a line uh, to the base. Uh, and then they returned, but actually they never did return to the base. They never showed up that night. So the next morning, there was a thorough search of the sea, hoping to find someone, crew, wreckage, something, nothing. Um, not until 15 years later, a team that was uh, doing an exploration of oil found the wreckage of the Lady Be Good. And from the wreckage, they were able to piece together the story, what happened that night. It turns out that she had encountered very heavy tailwinds coming back from that mission, such that her, she, she passed over her base at full altitude in a heavy cloud cover uh, while she, before she ever started to descend and search for her base. And so when she came down descending to search for her base, she was over sand, which at nighttime looks very much like the sea. And so even though her reference point was directly behind her, she kept flying the same heading further and further away from safety until 440 miles deep into the Sahara Desert, she runs out of fuel. The crew bails out of the aircraft, and when they land, they find sand instead of sea, much to their shock. Turns out this crew had followed what they thought was the truth, the sea, right in front of them, when in fact the truth was this was the desert, and they followed that wrong information all the way to their deaths. So, sometimes when we see the truth in front of us, the endings, or we misinterpret the truth in front of us, the endings are humorous, and sometimes they are tragic. Wouldn't it have been great if Jesus himself had whispered over my shoulder, Stuart, you're looking at the oil pressure gauge. Your engine temperature is just fine. Just keep on driving. Or for that pilot of the B-24, if he'd have said, your base is directly behind you. Turn around 180 degrees and you'll fly safely home. We all want to know, what does Jesus say about our circumstances day by day? But there is a place where we typically do not ask him first. And that is in our purchases, our lifestyle choices, even our investments. Turns out, though, that the creator of the universe, the omniscient one, has very specific counsel for us in this. And so we're going to dig into that a little bit today. Now, I'm going to go through the scriptures pretty quickly today. So you could, I encourage you to make note of the references. You won't have time to write it all down. And then go back and do further study. But let's stay in our main text, which is in Matthew 6, uh, 19 through 24. We're going to start with the first two verses. But let me pray for us before we get started. Father, we want to follow you. <clears throat> we want to follow the truth. But we are often misguided by the truth that is right in front of us and we choose a different path because we're blinded. And so today, 
um, for the sake of your glory, for the sake of our joy, open our eyes to see truth that we will follow uh, safely home. Jesus, we pray this for the glory of your name. Amen. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt or thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves do not break in and steal. Now, the Bible has a lot of warnings about warning us against the desire to become rich. So, for Jesus to say, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, is pretty expected. But does it surprise you that here Jesus is saying, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven? It seems countercultural, at least from the scriptures. But here's something I've noticed about the Bible. In the Old Testament, material wealth was very closely tied to God's blessing, increasing the land, enlarging the land, you know, expanding my borders and such as that. In the New Testament, there's a significant shift away from material blessing here and now to heavenly blessing. And material wealth is, becomes a tool for us to gain heavenly treasure. The blessing, then, is the heavenly treasure in the New Testament. In, the same, in this same Sermon on the Mount, this is the seventh reference to gaining treasure in heaven. There are repeated references throughout the Gospels that Jesus made. Here's another one. And... If anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth. He will certainly not lose his reward. Something as simple as a cup of cold water gains us reward. He even tells us when he will bring us this reward. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Why would he have such a repeated emphasis on reward? Ever thought about that? It is because he has built into us this motivation for gain, an eternal self-interest that draws our hearts heavenward. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our enemy and even our own flesh puts us into this default mode of trying to store up treasures for ourselves here, drawing our hearts away from heaven and towards the earth and where we are, promoting extravagant self-focus and excessive luxury. When we think that living the American dream in the pursuit of comfort and ease is the right course, we're missing the truth that's right in front of us. When when we wear ourselves out only to find that that which we've achieved does not satisfy and is not secure, 
yet we keep on straining in the same path, (laughs) we're missing the truth that's right in front of us. When we become anxious about losing our stuff, Jesus speaks over our shoulder and says this, one thing is certain, you will lose everything that you store up here on this earth. Whether it is by moth and rust corrupting it, thieves breaking in and stealing it, the market collapsing and it disappearing for you, the value, or the certainty of your death, you will not enjoy in eternity that which you are working so hard here to protect. So Jesus says, let me give you a little tip. There is a way for you to invest so that you can enjoy these treasures for all eternity. Now, think for a moment about something that you've bought, say, four or five years ago. I want you to kind of picture something in your mind that you've purchased. And let me ask you some questions about it. Is it worn out? Is it broken yet? Have you had a repairman come get it? Do you find this treasure as enjoyable as when you first acquired it? Is there a better model on the market today? Now, think about heavenly treasure. Jesus tells us that though these treasures are enjoyed in heaven, they are themselves eternal and will not be consumed. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Paul saw this truth, and he tells us what he does to gain reward. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but... We do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul is rigorous in his pursuit of prize. He's aggressive about what he must do, self-denial, limiting some of the things that he could have. But it's difficult for us to see what the Bible is saying. Should we rearrange our spending priorities for something so far away? That's when Jesus brings us to the idea of spiritual vision. He says, the lamp, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? We have the wrong vision because we've lost focus. We've allowed our hearts to be drawn to the wrong kingdom. Jesus is talking about the ability to see 
reality here. <clears throat> the deceitfulness of wealth will choke out the word and make it unfruitful. But yet, we hear an advertisement and we believe it. For example, uh, let's take toothpaste. If I brush my teeth with this toothpaste, I will have glistening white teeth. See them? See them? Great. Maybe not. I didn't get enough of that toothpaste. I need to get some more of it. And I'll get the girl, right? Which I already got the girl, so I don't need the toothpaste. Good. <clears throat> uh, if I buy this car, I'll feel important. If I live in this neighborhood, people will look up to me. Um, they're just endless amounts of advertisements, but we fail to ask ourselves, will this really deliver as promised? And we're deceived. We struggle with such counsel because we can see the here and now. We can touch it. But we cannot see into heaven. The Son of God came from heaven and lived on earth, which would make him then the only reliable witness to the reality of heaven and the brevity of where we now live. Sounds like a good place to go for counsel. Jesus encountered a man who struggles just like we do. And here's his story. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, and he gives him the list. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. What he's saying is, I'm trying to do what is right. But I've got this nagging sense inside of me that I'm missing the truth that's right in front of me. I'm not seeing what you're trying to say. Now, it's important for us to pause here and get a sense of the love of God for this man. In fact, for each soul. God is gracious to him and to us. He loves us passionately. He is laser focused on our specific need. And he will refine you and I at that point of need. As a father loves his son, God steps into our lives and brings us difficult choices to deliver us from the chains that bind us. This man was imprisoned by his stuff, as are most rich people. Jesus looked at him and loved him. <clears throat> One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. He went at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. In parentheses, we could say, because he was in chains, shackled to his great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. 
in the past, when I would read this passage, it, it really troubled me. My reaction was fear. I would say, is Jesus saying that I have to sell all of my stuff in order to rightly follow him? Maybe. I guess that would depend on my specific need, wouldn't it? If I'm afraid of losing my security, my status, or my pleasures by letting go of my stuff, Jesus comes to me and he says, look, I want to give you an abundant life. Here's the way he says it. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He is not working to kill my joy, but to bring joy to me. We work to fill our lives with better stuff, bigger, faster stuff, or just more stuff because we are hungry for joy. He is working to make our life full by giving himself to us. Nothing on earth compares to knowing Christ. We just have to slow down enough to get to know him. Jesus is working here to point us to the right measure of success, to the truth that's right in front of us. Jesus wants us to focus on enlarging our experience where it really matters in eternity and letting the joy of that anticipation drive us today. Paul had some instruction to Timothy in regards to the rich, which some of you are including me. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up for themselves treasures, a firm foundation for the coming age, treasures for for themselves, a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. Now, perhaps the first part of this verse, verse 17, is a little bit of a comfort to you because you're thinking, are you saying that I need to just go and live in rags and, you know, total destitution? No, that's not what this verse says. This verse is saying that God who gives us everything for our enjoyment, rest, relaxation, refreshment, all these are necessary elements to sustain us in our pilgrimage towards our home in heaven. So we enjoy these gifts to strengthen us to carry out the mission. As we go, we ask God, to, to teach us, to open our eyes and, so that we know which expenditures are wise, which ones draw our hearts towards heaven, and which ones might draw our focus to here and so actually rob us of joy rather than increasing it. This promise of Jesus, <clears throat> of treasure, should have us dancing with joy if we apprehend it. There's a story in the Bible, really short story, really short, two verses, and it's really powerful. 
the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then, in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Now, I want you to imagine that this is you. That you found this treasure. You recognize the value of this treasure. And you also recognize that you'd be a fool not to pursue it. Nothing you have even comes anywhere close to buying this, to matching this treasure. Nothing. And so you run home. And men, you come and tell your wife, Honey, we're selling everything and we're going to go out and buy that empty field. And she says, Do what? And so you kind of walk her through the process and you try to expose her to the truth and perhaps she gets a hold of it. Perhaps she doesn't. Hope she does. But then your friends start to find out about it. The people you know, your family and such, immediate family and around. And they start to find out about your zeal to sell everything you've got to go buy this, what seems to be a worthless field because they don't know what's in the field. Imagine what they're saying about you. Old Stu's lost his mind. I knew he was going to go off the deep end. This religion thing's going to get the best of him. You've got to live with balance, you know. Uh, who's going to take care of him when he gets old? Is Jesus going to do that for him? I feel badly for his kids. They don't understand what you have found. Perhaps the reason that I'm not so aggressive to do that is because I don't understand what Jesus has shown to me. There was a young missionary uh, in the late 50s uh, who, with his zeal, he and four others, you've heard of him before, were martyred in the jungles of Ecuador, Jim Elliott. And he made this now famous quote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. There is nothing of greater value, no other gain that is greater that we can possess than the presence of Jesus eternally. I don't want you to misunderstand that we're trying to elevate treasures in heaven and rewards above Christ himself Jesus' glory fills the heaven so much so that there's no need for the sun. So how could anything have value in addition to being in the presence of Christ? I don't know. What I do know is this, is Jesus repeatedly tells us to pursue treasure in heaven. Therefore, the treasure must be beautiful of stunning value, and it is certainly individual. It's very important for us to note that heaven turns earth's order on its head with the last being first. It is not the size of the check that Jesus uses to determine the treasure that you will gain in heaven. It is evidently as we see from the story in Luke of the poor widow, the size of the sacrifice that cuts ice with Jesus. The poor widow puts two small coins into the treasury, and yet Jesus says she put in more than all of the rest of them. So that we won't get confused here as to what we're talking about, grace, salvation, or reward, let's, let's focus on that for a moment. Paul writes this, For it is by grace that you have been saved 
through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. It is impossible for you ever to attain the righteousness to gain salvation. Jesus accomplished this on the cross, what no one else could do. And because of this finished work, you and I can be forgiven and receive this gift of eternal life. There'd be no point in trying to build eternal rewards without first receiving this gift because no one will enjoy anything in hell. However, those in Christ are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do good works prepared in advance for you to do. And your reward is from your work alone. Let me give you this example. Suppose that you wanted to build a cabinet, but you didn't have the tools to build it. You didn't have the materials to build it. You don't have a plan by which to build it. And frankly, you don't even have the energy to build it. And Jesus comes along and he says, I'll give you all of those things. You build it and I'll keep it for you. So if we apply ourselves and we build something, there's a treasure there that Jesus will keep for us to enjoy. If we do not apply ourselves, it remains just a pile of materials and there's no treasure to enjoy at all. He gives you the resources, you provide the effort, and he gives you the reward. It's a great deal. You can't beat it. Paul clarifies this idea of works versus uh, the security of the believer in this one. By grace, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any other foundation than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If a man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Frankly, I'd rather suffer loss here and gain there rather than coming walking through into heaven smelling like smoke. The results are eternal. There is no going back. It will not all come out in the wash. Rewards lost cannot be recovered. And today... God, in his mercy, shakes our tree to get our attention and wake us up out of our spiritual stupor so that we will not squander eternal reward for temporal gain. God calls us from the book of Isaiah saying, Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen. Listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Jesus is drawing us with his love into a strategic lifestyle for the kingdom which yields treasures that last forevermore. 
Finally, Jesus speaks to us rather directly in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, for me, uh, I, I really, that, this, this, I'm never quite sure, am I serving God or money? I mean, there's some questions that come into my mind. Well, how do I know? Because I don't think I'm serving money, and I know I can't do both. So how would I discern the two? Well, we worship and serve that which we trust. So perhaps this will help a little bit if we ask ourselves some questions. How do you define prosperity? What comes to mind for you? Do you think of prosperity strictly as material gain or dollars and cents? If you have a week that does not produce financial gain, was that a wasted week? How about a month or a year? Obviously, the Scriptures tell us that we've got to work to provide food for our families and such. That's true. But suppose that you had 30 years of labor that you just barely got by, but that God used to invest strategically in the kingdom. Were you prosperous? Would the world say you were prosperous? Here's a definition that seems to me to flow out of the Scriptures. Prosperity is anything that enlarges your heavenly experience. Relationships that endure, sacrifices that please the king, obedience from which we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It's another group of questions. If I offered you right now, let's assume that I had the capacity to do this, $1 million right now, or a deeper relationship with God. So I could offer both. Which one would you choose? Let me see. If I take the million dollars, I could pay off the debts and such and get some stuff. I could buy a couple things. I'd give a lot of that money away. I'd, I'd give a lot of that money away. I would, and then I'd, uh, I'd set myself up pretty good. And then I'd come together and we could do a little time spending and get no, no God. Now, come on. Is your heart tempted there? If the draw of my heart is more towards security in that million dollars than it is in knowing Christ, is it possible that I might be serving, trying to serve two gods, have it both ways? The message translates this verse uh, 24 this way. You can't worship two gods at once. Loving one God, you'll end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. You can't worship God and money both. So, when Jesus says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, and we know by reading these verses, he's talking about giving money. Does this build in you a sense of gratitude for such gracious counsel to multiply your kingdom reward? Or... Does contempt build up in you saying, 
I can't believe he's come talking about my money. When your church or friend recommends that you give money away to this opportunity or that one, are you at least internally a little bit put off? Is there something churning inside your soul, some conflict? I had a friend of mine providentially call me last week, uh, a dear friend, and he, uh, he said, um, you know, Stuart, I think I owe you an apology. Okay. He said, so when we were at lunch a couple months back and you were challenging me to give to this specific ministry, it's a worthy ministry for me to pursue, and, and I said to you, well, I was thinking about putting that money, I was going to build a shop with that. I left the luncheon, and as I drove away, God was really pounding on me because I knew I had no intent to put that money into a shop. I was just trying to back you off a little bit, Jack. And uh, I said to him, John, his name's not John, by the way. I said, John, I don't think you owe me an apology. I wasn't the least bit offended. I didn't even think about it, to be honest with you. But you might want to talk to God about it. And I promise you this, John. I will keep challenging you to invest in the kingdom because one day, when you're in heaven and I get to look you up, you are going to come running up to me and you're going to say, Stuart, thank you so much for putting your finger in my face and say, don't sit on that money. Invest it now where it will do you some eternal good because look at what God has produced because of it. Friends, this is Jesus' message to us. Store up for yourselves treasures that will last. Open your eyes to see the potential gain. Break the chains of the prison of your stuff and reject the taunts of the false god of money so that you can take hold of life that is truly life. We get the worship team to come up here for us as we're getting ready to close up. But friends, I want you to understand that to apply this teaching, come on guys, (laughs) hello Jerry send these guys this way thank you all right to apply this teaching requires some prayerful discussions in your homes and Jesus will likely call some of you to hard choices depending on your specific need he loves you so much And he's offering with you the opportunity to have close fellowship with him, to dine with him, to enjoy his company. But he cannot fill clenched fists. You have to open them up and let it go and then ask him what he wants you to do with the things that he's entrusted to your care. The commitment can begin right here, right now, where you sit as you respond. Or if you want, while the worship team sings, you can come down here and drive a stake into the ground. 
But to follow up on this is going to take some detailed discussions and choices and likely going to take you months to implement. I'm going to give to you here a couple of resources that you can look up. One, here you see the treasure principle in the center. The treasure principle is a stripped-down version of the book on the left, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, an excellent and thorough discussion of what we just talked about and a lot more. And then the book on the right, Radical, the guy's crazy, don't read it, okay? Don't cre- the guy's nuts. Uh, <clears throat> I'm teasing you. I want you guys to understand that what Jesus is asking us to do is to pursue joy. He's telling us to open our eyes, to look at the truth that's right in front of us, and to pursue joy. So, let's spend some time praying about that. In a couple of minutes, I'll close this out with prayer.